You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Ready to get it on. Go! We're on express elevator to hell. Going down. Two. One. Mark. Hot as hell in here. Yeah, man, but it's a dry heat. Knock it off, Hudson. Movement! What's the position? Uh, can't lock in. Talk to me, Hudson. Uh, multiple signals. They're closing. I got signals. I got readings in front and behind. Where, man? He's right. There's nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in. It ain't us. Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? We're some real pretty shit now, man. You finished. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do? 17 days. Hey, man, I don't want to rain on your parade, but we're not gonna last 17 hours. Those things are gonna come in here just like they did before, and they're gonna come in here, and they're gonna, gonna come in here, and they're gonna Hudson! get us. Take a portable terminal, go out there and patch in manually. Oh, yeah, sure. With those things running around, you can count me out. What do you mean they cut the power? How could they cut the power, man? They're animals. Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to GeekFest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we are going to be revisiting an earlier topic that we hit, believe it or not, a hundred episodes ago. This is a continuation or a deeper examination, if you will, of one of my favorite actors, Bill Paxton, who passed away a little over two years ago. Ironically, this is also not only, not only are we doing this a hundred episodes later, by sheer accident, we didn't, I didn't time it out this way, that it was going to be a hundred episodes. Uh, it's just bizarre coincidence. And another thing that's something that I have forgotten to mention during my last uh, episode or the one before is that we hit our ninth anniversary. We've been doing this show now for nine years. It's hard to believe nine years. We started back in 2010 and man has the show changed and mutated and reformatted itself and visually looks different than it did the first time but not so different in other ways. But one of the reasons I wanted to kind of revisit this topic again, um, the life and work of Bill Paxton, is because after the original episode that I did back in March of 2017, which was a month after he had passed, is that I have since watched a lot of, you know, tribute videos and 
you know, archival material of him and interviews. And what I found was two, two specific interviews that he gave for podcasts. One was the Mark Marin WTF podcast. This is a podcast I used to listen to. And the other one was for a podcast called All Things Comedy, where he's being interviewed by comedian Dean Del Rey. These are very, very telling interviews, and I, I'm including links to them because if you're a fan of, of Bill Paxton, I think it's important that you should listen to these two interviews. They were done literally days, if not maybe two weeks before his passing, and it gives you an insight into the life of this actor that you normally don't get to. This is the equivalent of sitting down and having a, a literally a, a hour or two hour conversation with all things having to do with career and goals and ambitions and where you are in your life. One of the things that it seems to touch upon is, I think, uh, an ongoing, you know, kind of like a midlife crisis type of scenario that he he apparently either was going through or or had been going through for a long time. But my God, the, do some of these things resonate so much? You know, not only in in our personal lives, in my personal life, but it's really interesting to know that somebody who we would consider to be such a successful actor, you know, was going through similar feelings and situations. So I kind of felt that it was important to let's dive once more, you know, into the career uh, of Bill Paxton and then try to go a little deeper in, into some of those things that were mentioned uh, on these two interviews that I just mentioned. Again, definitely uh, you should guys should uh, uh, take the time to listen to them. But let's begin with our look back at Bill Paxton. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You are a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. All right, today I want to talk about an actor that's passed named Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton came into my radar primarily, I would say, with the movie Aliens. He played Hudson, a very, very memorable character in the movie Aliens. Aliens is another subject we're going to be talking about sometime in the future. But specifically, this actor, for whatever reason, and we're talking about... 1986 here, I'm 16 years old, he just clicked with me. That particular performance that he did for that movie was something that just grabbed onto me and I was like, wow, is there any way we can get more of this? Granted, in the movie, the character dies, so we pretty much know there's nothing else we can do with this character. But this was one of the first times I've experienced something like this, where, you know, you have something that's very good that I absolutely love, the movie Aliens. But within that movie, you have one character that just, 
I don't want to say he steals the movie because the movie is so powerful enough as it is that I wouldn't say he could steal that caliber of a movie. If the movie was not, not as good, then maybe, yes, you could say he steals the movie. But in this particular case, he just left this imprint on me that all of a sudden I'm like, I got to see more of this particular person. This is the guy that I want to see more of because he is capable of doing something that is very different. And this happens sometimes with, with movies where you have actors that just like pop out, you know, that become so memorable. Granted, it, I would say in, in a similar fashion, The Dark Knight, the Heath Ledger performed. Now, granted, the Heath, Heath Ledger, you know, he, he won the, the posthumous um, Academy Award for that role. You know, no kidding. I mean, but that's when you kind of see this thing where you have this roadmap of what this story being told is. But one particular character, granted, he's the heavy in the movie, uh, so you do expect him to shine. But I did not expect him to outshine the lead. The lead was great, but that performance, and and a lot of that performance uh, was also, I believe, credited to the actor himself, which is kind of what brings me back to Bill Paxton. The Hudson character that he played in Aliens, I think it was written a certain way, but I think that he added so much more to it that that's what made him kind of stick out so much, at least in my young mind, and, and connect to it. And this is one of these actors or performers or artists, if you will, just like I talked about very recently about Huey Lewis. This is somebody who at that time, I made that connection and I kind of grabbed it and ran with it for many, many years. And I would kind of track their careers and their art, depending on what they're doing, whether they're doing television, film, music, whatever it is that they're doing, you know, I started following and following and that became my my go-to, you know, actor. Again, we talked about this before. This is the, the fanboy psychology, is that you find something or someone or a movie or a show or something that might be slightly overlooked. You know, you don't automatically go for the big, gigantic monster hits. I mean, you do a lot of times, but at the same time, Usually you try to find something that's kind of small, but that you really react well to it and you grab onto that and that becomes yours. It's your thing. And then you try to compare notes with people and say, well, have you ever seen this or have you ever heard of this? Have you ever watched this movie, watched this actor? So this is, you know, kind of what ends up happening a lot of times is that you, you make it your own and then you find people that have that in common with you. And you hopefully, because of the fact that it is not a widely known thing, it is not a mainstream thing, it's small enough that you still have a personal connection to it. Whether through conventions, you can go visit an individual and meet them or whatever, or, or go to a concert because it's not a super mega star concert, it's a more of a small type of thing. So that is how you know my connection to bill paxton you know quickly got formed around that time now if you track his career you know it has a typical actor's track in terms of starting with very small roles and getting some medium-sized roles getting some slightly bigger roles but in his particular case he never exploded he never you know, became a top A tier actor, you know, not a megastar, multi-million dollar, you know, a Tom Cruise kind of Johnny Depp kind of individual. He was born in Texas 
His father was, uh, I believe, was a businessman, but he also kind of did a little bit of side acting. Like I mentioned before, when you track his career, it's the typical slow bit part type of thing. A lot of these movies that I'm going to mention, I've never even seen. Again, the, the, the roles are so small sometimes that you have to really dig hard to find that the shot where he's in it. His first credited film is on Jonathan Demme's Crazy Mama, which is an action comedy by Jonathan Demme. Never seen it. Never had a chance. Then you have Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker Night Warning. I have no clue what that is. It's I think it was a horror, some kind of possible slashery kind of film or something like that. Again, you're talking bit roles, really, really small parts. The first one was 1975, now we're 1981. 1981, you also have Stripes. I've seen Stripes a million times. I have never noticed him in it, but apparently he does have a role in it. He's credited as soldier number eight. Wow. I will have to one day, you know, take the time to look at that. 1983, he's credited with a movie called Reckless, then a movie called The Lords of Discipline. The Lords of Discipline now I'm a little more familiar with because I believe possibly Michael Bean might have been in that one too. Yeah, I think that was one of Bean's uh, first films. And what's interesting is that around this time, they credit him as Wild Bill Paxton. You know, he's kind of going off on that little southern uh, nickname for a while. He did some horror film called Mortuary the same year. Taking Tiger Mountain. Again, some of these I've never heard of. 1984, Streets of Fire. Now, I remember Streets of Fire because William Dafoe is in that one. Again, I got to dig around. He played Clyde the Bartender. Okay, maybe you can find him. (laughs) 84, he also has Impulse, a sci-fi thriller. Again, bit parts. But here we go. Here's the big one that didn't necessarily make him a star, but he was involved in a huge film. Now, don't get me wrong. Stripes was a huge film in terms of it was a very successful comedy. It is a classic, you know, when you think about it. But I don't know if it really gave him that much traction because what he did for the next two years or three years almost, I don't know if it did a lot for his career. It just kind of kept on building his resume. But Terminator was different. Terminator, even though at the time... You know, I did not become a fan of him when I saw Terminator. I became a huge fan of Terminator. Don't get me wrong. Terminator was amazing. It is one of these landmark films. I've talked about it about a million times already. But his role, he's one of the two punks. He's the punk with the uh, with the spiky blue hair that gets uh, killed, I, I guess, uh, by Schwarzenegger. He had a very typical Paxton kind of role and the lines and the attitude it's all there it's just that at that time I didn't grab onto it because it's a very quick very fast scene that he's in Uh, so that also kind of started his his connection with with Cameron which will continue for many years you know past that then the following year he has weird science Again, now we're dealing with a more high-profile comedy, not as big as Stripes, but he's got a bigger, more definitive role that, again, when he's on the screen, he owns that scene. He plays such a bastard of a character that is so cool and memorable that, you know, it, it is now you're dealing with classic Paxton, small roles that shine. You know, that's what he does. He had a bit part in Commando, Schwarzenegger's Commando. So again, another Schwarzenegger film. I think this is a really, really small part. And then 1986, Aliens, the ones we were talking about before. 
again, that's what kind of brought him to the forefront for me. And it's like, wow. And as we normally do, that's when we started looking backwards. Like, wait a minute. He was in Weird Science? Oh, my God. He was in Weird Science. He was in Terminator? Oh, my God. He was in Terminator. You know, it's one of those things where you start looking back and, you know, and, and, and anticipating the future of what comes next. His character is just fantastic. He takes a lot of the, the, the funny lines of the movie. He is just such an attitude character that he just completely shines, completely shines in that movie. 1987, Near Dark. Near Dark is, again, another th- film, just like Aliens, that I'm going to have to do a show on because this was his follow-up to Aliens, and this is also his collaboration with Catherine Bigelow. Uh, where she kind of rounded up a a whole bunch of people from the cast of Aliens, again, because of her, at the time, relationship with James Cameron. And they put together this Western vampire film, more or less, which I absolutely love. I I think it's one of my favorite vampire films ever. And the fact that now you got some of these really cool actors from Aliens very recently that I, you know you've, I've seen in the movies show up in another film doing a completely different kind of role but his role being so much bigger so much up front granted he's not the lead but he's 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 got a bigger part and he gets to go all you know all Bill Paxton let's put it that he goes all out you know with his mannerisms and his his quick put downs and all that stuff that that granted I'm sure a lot of it is scripted but a lot of it feels so natural to him great film 1988 you have Pass the Ammo another comedy uh, that he has a, a part in by this time he's getting a lot of work you know, I mean, before he was getting a lot of work, but very smaller parts. Now he's getting more of like a medium-sized roles, more noticeable roles. But they're really not that great. This mid-period in the 80s, I would say from from Terminator to Aliens to Near Dark, Weird Science. This was a cluster where he just made his first big stride into very well-known movies, very profitable movies, where his name really got pushed out there for everybody else to see. However, what follows is not necessarily, I would say, his best work. By the time we get to the late 80s, things are a little different. For example, Pass the Ammo, like I said, 1988. Another thing to keep in mind is that he also had other projects happening at the same time. While he's doing film, he's also doing some television He's also doing some music, believe it or not, because he had a like a side band with, with, with the next Devo guy, and they formed a, a band called Martini Ranch, which I own the album and I own the CD. <laughs> and in 1988, after Near Dark, they did a music video for one of their songs called Reach that was actually directed by James Cameron. So they got part of the cast of uh, Near Dark and some other, you know, actors that were in in Aliens, for example, you know, the the Cameron crew, and they put together this video. And even, I I think even Kathleen Bigelow has a cameo in it too. It was, it's a fun song. It's, It's very 80s, but it's one of these little side projects that he's working on. But like I said, even though he has this nice, nice cluster of good films, what comes next is really, I would say, B level material. 
Slipstream, Next of Kin. That was a uh, Patrick Swayze vehicle. You know, Patrick Swayze was was becoming very popular, so he had a role there. Last of the Finest, a cop film. Brain Dead, another horror film. Uh, Navy Seals. Navy Seals. That was a Michael Bean, Charlie Sheen project, and he was just another guy in it. Uh, I think he dies pretty quick or something like that. It, it didn't really go too far. Predator 2. Wow. Predator 2 had a lot of promise. He had a pretty eh, medium role, but yeah, not much. <laughs> not much there. The Dark Backward. Okay, he also did a lot of really weird comedy horror type of stuff, and this is definitely one of them. That's with Judd Nelson, I believe. One False Move. Now, here's a movie that kind of sticks out there, and it's like, wait a minute, this is pretty good. He did a crime film uh, with uh, Billy Bob Thornton. This is a, I would say, I would put this in one of his bests, because he's got a pretty beefy co-leading role, and uh, he really gets to stretch out his dramatic skills as an actor, which I hadn't seen before. He's, he, he's, he had done a lot of, you know, he's got The Last of the Finest and, you know, he plays in some crime kind of films. But this one is more serious and it's it's actually good. It's actually better than than expected. So I would throw one false move in the uh, in the plus category. Right now we're like in the, in the early 90s. 1992, The Vagrant, the horror comedy. Oh, my God. I haven't even seen this. The problem that's happening here at the same time is that when he is giving a lead role they're not necessarily in very good movies. So he can stay in the middle or he can try to move one notch up, but the quality of what's one notch up is not that good. He also did Trespass uh, by Walter Hill. Uh, he does have one of these leading kind of roles. It's a more of an action-y crime uh, type of movie. Eh, not bad. Uh, Boxing Helena, a really strange film by Jennifer Lynch. Uh, Indian Summer, uh, kind of like a drama comedy harmless kind of movie monolith a sci-fi film again not very successful tombstone now tombstone was directed by george cosmatos this was a pretty high profile kind of film because it had uh, kurt russell and val kilmer and sam elliott and bill paxton as one of the brothers you know powers booth and michael bean you know a lot of these guys are back it was like it was a more or less high profile western you know for, for its time and he does get a pretty good little role in it but again this is back to that other formula of having a good middle mid-sized role behind a whole bunch of high profile people so that's interesting that yeah that one you kind of remember a little more and this also marks what i would consider to be his second act if you will of his career his his next big push towards you know, all of a sudden being a little bit in the limelight like he was in the mid-80s. So after Tombstone, he puts out a movie called Future Shock, which I think it was pretty forgettable. I can barely remember what it is, if I even saw it. Again, this could have been one of these films that he was doing before that now it, it's coming out. However, very, very important, True Lies. Once again, we have James Cameron doing another big project with Schwarzenegger, and Bill Paxton gets a role, this time a bigger role than he did, you know, initially with Terminator. He gets to play another comedic kind of character. Again, a bigger, more noticeable uh, stint, which kind of, you know, wow, this is a big, big movie. Kind of, you know, even bigger than Tombstone. 
That is followed by Apollo 13. Now, Apollo 13, wow, there's something. Man, was that a big, big, great film. That's the Ron Howard, Tom Hanks vehicle, which has the other, you know, lead stars. And he's one of those other lead stars. Again, he's 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 still not the star, but he is a very, very good co-star. The definition of a supporting character, you know, that's where he seems to shine the most is when he becomes this upper tier supporting characters. He's done lower tier supporting characters and upper tier supporting characters. But with Apollo 13, bam, he's right there, you know, exactly where he should be. He did something called The Last Supper, which is described as a black comedy. Never heard of it. I don't think I've seen it. He did Frank and Jesse. Again, because of the success of a tombstone, I believe people started saying, you know what? He he plays a pretty good cowboy-y kind of character. So at this point, he, you know, he starts, you know, dabbling in, in, in more Westerns. Then in 96, it's pretty much the perfect storm, no pun intended, because now he gets a leading role, a co-starring role. Let's put it that way. Him and Helen Hunt with Twister. Action, adventure, summer, blockbuster kind of film. Perfect. This is the highest, I think, that he's going to get on film, you know, on his own as far as being top-notch star status. It's a great, fun movie. I think Jean de Bond was the director, I think. Really, really great choice, you know, very lucky that he landed that one. And Along the way, he also has a role on The Evening Star. Again, another one of these films that, again, another one of these films that are barely remembered. I believe it's supposed to be a sequel to Terms of Endearment, the, the pretty you know big popular movie back in the early 80s, but I don't think it, it really got any traction. Uh, he did The Traveler. Again, at this point, going back to, yes, being the lead, but at a much smaller scale of a film. So... It seems to be about volume with him. You know, you, you you take your chances. You want to have that guaranteed starting role, but you're going to be doing a much smaller film, smaller budgets, independence, that kind of stuff. And then you have Titanic, <laughs> 1997. Oh, boy. Well, what can you say about Titanic? It is a monster. It's a monster of a movie. It, it became the highest, most profitable movie ever made for a long time. I forget, I think Avatar dethroned it, and more recently, Avengers, I think Endgame dethroned Avatar. So, 1997, Titanic became the biggest thing in the world. He had a supporting role, once again. He looks completely different. He's got like, I think they colored his hair kind of reddish or something. I saw him and I'm like, that's Bill Paxton? He just looked bizarre. He's got a pretty cool little contemporary role because... His part of the story is is what's taking place now, let's say, or at least at that time. It's not the remembering back to the actual uh, voyage. He's the, the lead expedition scientist, if you will, the treasure hunter. So we kind of get to experience the movie through his adventure, let's say. A smaller role. If you think of Titanic, you really don't think of Bill Paxton. You think of Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, and Kate Winslet. It's, it's, it's really their movie. But... In, in true James Cameron fashion, he gave him a nice little role, uh, and he did great. He did really good. 1998, that's followed by A Simple Plan. Now, 
A Simple Plan was a Sam Raimi film when he had decided to do more of a serious film. You know, Sam Raimi is more known for his, uh, yeah, for Evil Dead and Spider-Man and that kind of stuff. But A Simple Plan was his shot at a kind of like a crime thriller suspense type of film. And I think if you like One False Move, which is one of his best, one of uh, Bill Paxton's best serious roles, this one you'll like too. It's a very smart thrilling kind of a story so definitely if you want to see him in a non-genre good movie this is the one to go to he did mighty joe young with i believe charlene theron this was a shot to re try to remake a classic more or less you know not a king kong movie but the the thing that they copied you know they did mighty joe young i guess as as, as, as the answer to king kong well this was a shot to remake that particular film not a particularly great movie, wonderful, amazing new special effects, but a little bit of a flop, I would say. In the year 2000, we have U571. This is one that I was kind of excited about, and it's okay. It's a World War II film about U-boats, and he has a role in it. He plays a, a character. A lot of very well I mean, Matthew McConaughey, Harvey Keitel, Bon Jovi has a... Uh, a role, uh, you know, a lot of pretty well-known people. It's okay. It's not great, but it's it's okay. It's all right. Uh, again, at this point, we're not really in blockbuster, you know, material here. We're talking about a. They're still pretty big movies. They're not, you know, these are not full-blown independent films. They're still studio pictures. They're just not getting, you know, that much out of them. Vertical limit. I think I saw this on, on video. Uh, good. It's a mountain climbing movie. You know, uh, another kind of thriller. Pretty good. Not great, but pretty good. You, I think if you're a fan, you would enjoy it. 2001 Frailty. Now, with Frailty, this one I went to see in the theaters because I knew that this was going to be his directorial debut. This one stars uh, Matthew McConaughey, which I don't know for a fact, but maybe they started thinking about this back when uh, they were doing U571. But this is a, a horror thriller with two lead characters, Bill Paxton and Matthew McConaughey. Really, really good, thrilling, horror, suspenseful film. I, I remember this one was really interesting. But he never really kind of went back to that sort of thing. He, he, he directed other films, uh, but not in this particular, you know, genre. 2002, he's got a, a role in Spy Kids 2. Again, more Spy Kids films really didn't get anywhere after after a while. He was the narrator of Ghost of the Abyss, based on, you know, the Titanic success. 2003, uh, he did a movie called Resistance, World War II film. I honestly don't even remember this ever coming out. He did another Spy Kids film, Spy Kids 3D. And then at this point, as you can kind of tell, he's kind of starting to fade again. He's, he comes in and he comes out, and he comes in and he comes out. 2004, Club Dread, a comedy. Okay, don't remember much of that one. Thunderbirds, oh my God. I do remember Thunderbirds because at that time it was still kind of genre, and it was like, oh, they're, they're doing a live-action Thunderbirds film. And it was directed by Jonathan Frakes, out of all people in the world. Yeah, it was really, uh, ouch. It was just a miss. It was a miss. It was a, a, a studio miss. Let's put it that way. It just didn't, wasn't that good. Uh, Haven. Uh, never heard of this one. Looks like some kind of thriller. 2005, Magnificent Desolation. 
Walking on the Moon, 3D. Again, this is a documentary, an IMAX documentary, where he gets to... And he's probably, again, the reason he's probably associated with this one is probably because of Apollo 13. You know, you have his connection to that. The greatest game ever played. He didn't act in it, but that is his second directorial uh, film. A film about golf with uh, Sheila Booth, out of all people. Never seen it. I've heard about it. I, I think people said it was kind of all right, but nothing that really catapulted him into, you know, full-time directorial work. Now, what comes next, as far as films go, is 2007 The Good Life. Never heard of it. Looks like some kind of crime thriller. And then no movies until 2011. And the reason why we have this kind of slowdown in the movie side from 2005 to 2007 and then not nothing until 2011 is because at this point he got involved in a television show for, I believe it was HBO, called Big Love. Big Love was a drama about the Mormon faith and he was like the possible new leader of this it was a really interesting show and i watched it all the way through on hbo granted you know as usual i saw the name bill paxton and i'm like yep i'm there i'll give it a shot and it was very entertaining and it was it, i believe it won some awards uh, and that sort of thing he was actually nominated multiple times for golden globe awards you know for the show and that kind of brings us also to this period in his not only in his life but even earlier on in his career he had done not a lot but a little bit of television because he was able to find success you know in films really he had done some music videos at first you know before really getting into acting uh, he actually directed the video for the song fish heads which is a weird novelty song i believe it was if you guys know who dr demento was or is i don't know if he's around uh but he it, it, again he was for some reason, tapped to be the uh, the director for that. He had done some acting on music videos also. I uh, listed here is Shadow of the Night, Pat Benatar. My God, Pat Benatar. New Order, Touched by the Hand of God. Wow. We talked about Reach, you know, Martini Ranch, which I, I love it. You know, again, it's, it's one of my uh, guilty pleasures. There were multiple videos for that that he was, you know, he was also on the music video. He also played a role in Eat You Alive, uh, Limp Biscuit, another music video. However, television is a little different because he doesn't have as many roles. He did have a role in the Deadly Lessons for ABC back in 1983. An Early Frost, that's a movie that I think was about the AIDS crisis uh, that did get some traction back then. It was one of the first movies to portray that. Again, tell, this is we're talking about television here for NBC. The Atlanta Child Murders... Uh, a CBS miniseries back in 85. Fresno, oh my God, I remember that name. 1986, but more important for me at least, Miami Vice. In 1985, he played a bad cop. Uh, it was a cop that he had a secret uh, girlfriend who was a, I don't know if she was a stripper or a hooker or whatever. And uh, I think he dies at the end. It's, <laughs> I remember that episode, but it's funny because obviously I didn't realize it was him when I was first watching it. Uh, later, I was able to make the connection. I said, wait a minute, that episode he was in it? Then you start researching. He's like, my God, that was him. That was Bill Paxton. Yeah, they were, you know, he, he did a lot of stuff. He was in an episode of The Hitchhiker, which I believe that's what they, that was an HBO series. Tales from the Crypt in 93. One of them, oh my God, that was a long time ago. Uh, a Bright Shining Light. Now, this was a movie, I believe, for, could have been HBO. I'm not entirely sure. 
think it was about the Vietnam War. And I think he got some pretty good traction out of that. He got good reviews. You know, he, he did a pretty good job. Uh, he appeared in an episode of Frasier. Oh, my God. I don't even remember that. I don't remember. I'm going to have to dig that one up. But then, yeah, Big Love. From 2006 to 2011, he was very busy with Big Love. That took a nice chunk of time, you know, out of his uh, career, you know, to work on that series, which was, again, it was a very good series. Then we move on to 2011. He had a small part in the movie Haywire. I personally love that movie. That's with Gina Carano. Michael Fassbender and Ewan McGregor, Channing Tatum, Antonio Banderas, Michael Douglas. This is a fantastic movie by Steven Soderbergh. Even though it's a very small part, I absolutely loved it. And the funny thing is that he plays the father of Gina Carano, which, you know, she's the star of the film. And I remember seeing this film and thinking to myself how much I enjoyed it and how much I was glad that... Bill Paxton had a role in it, but at the same time, I was starting to feel a little strange because it's like, oh, wow, he's playing like somebody's older father now. And it's like, it, it kind of started to hit me that this guy is starting to age. He's he's actually not the, the young, wild, uh, you know, Bill that he used to be, but, you know, he's kind of playing a little more to his age. Now, luckily, he's always been an actor that, one way or the other, he always played young. You know what I mean? He he, he always looked kind of young. So that kind of helped him in his movies. But here, he was more appropriately his age. Yeah, this I would add this movie, even though it's a small part, I would kind of add it to, to, to you know, my, my collection of his, his greatest hits, if you will. But as usual, he was a working actor. He would work and do just about anything as you will see by the name of some of these other films uh he did something called tornado alley i don't know what it is i think it might have been a documentary having to do with tornadoes again you know kind of like capitalizing on twister uh shanghai calling never seen it apparently a romantic comedy uh he seems to have a, a part in it uh, this is 2012 2012, also uh, on television, he did go back to the Western theme with Hatfields and McCoys, which was a miniseries on the History Channel. This, I remember, even though I haven't seen it, <laughs> still haven't seen it, it did catch a little bit of a buzz of, you know, a pretty good Western, if you will. And it, the Westerns had become kind of like a, a comfort place for him to go to every now and then. And, I, you know, I give it complete credit to Tombstone, but theoretically, I also give it a credit to Near Dark, because Near Dark was kind of a modern Western, if you will, but in a horror package. 2013, The Colony, sci-fi film with Lawrence Fishburne. Again, a smaller type of film. A lot of these movies, you can probably find them on a streaming service like a Netflix or in a, or in a Prime, for example. Two Guns. Uh, this was a slightly bigger profile film because of the fact that you had Denzel Washington and Mark Waldberg. So you're talking about, you know, an actual studio. Even though it was a big superstar kind of starring film, it really didn't do much, I think. I don't think it got anywhere. He had a part in it. He apparently did something called Red Wing also, which again, I don't know what that was all about. He narrated another documentary called JFK, The Day That Changed Everything, which he continued to do, you know, documentaries as a narrator. What's interesting about this particular documentary is that 
this is something that that some people know about him is that when he was young, his father took him to see JFK at an appearance in Dallas, I believe. And he actually got to see JFK. I don't know if it was coming out of the hotel, but right before he was shot. There are pictures in the museum, you know, JFK museums of Bill Paxton, I believe, on top of his father's shoulder, waiting to see the president, you know, the day that he was killed. He also that same year produced a film called Parkland, you know, about the JFK assassination because of his particular tie to that historical event. In 2014, he was in the movie Million Dollar Arm with John Hamm, again, it was a Disney film, not a big hit, kind of came and went. Edge of Tomorrow. Now, that's one I saw that I really, really liked, and he had a great, great role in it. This was the Tom Cruise, Emily Blunt vehicle sci-fi film about uh, time repeating itself. It was kind of like Groundhog's Day, but in a science fiction setting. Uh, he had a great, great role, and it, would, it was almost, you could call it a callback in a way of, of some of his older roles, the type of character he was playing. Really, really cool. Again, I wouldn't necessarily call this his third renaissance or his third act where his uh, movies kind of picked up, but there is a very short cluster here that we're hitting with Edge of Tomorrow and the next one called Nightcrawler. This was starting Jake Gigginhall. And Paxton played a stringer. I believe they call him a stringer. They're out there to catch footage of accidents, murders, that sort of thing. And they sell it to um, television stations, freelance style. This was another really, really good, creepy thriller. Jake Gigginhall, I don't remember if he was nominated for an Oscar or not, but he should have because he was amazing in this movie. And Paxton plays kind of like a heavy, like a bad guy, kind of heavy. And yeah, it's like, wow, here's another slightly different role for him, which it's like, great. It's when you have these little clusters where he kind of gets back in the business again and he, he starts to do really good work. At the same time, once again, he jumps into television and does a couple of episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., playing a, at first a questionable good guy and then a bad guy kind of character. So that lasted a little bit during 2014. 2015, his voice was used in an animated feature called Pixies. Don't really remember anything about that one. 2016, followed by Term Life. Another picture, uh, this time starring Vince Vaughn. Again, don't know much about it. Probably find it on a streaming service. Mean Dreams. Again, he's doing these smaller kind of films that really don't do much. You know, I'm sure it pays the bills, but still... It's kind of like, I've never heard of this. Going back again uh, to television in 2015, we have Texas Rising, another uh, miniseries having to do with the Texas Revolution and Texas Rangers. You know, again, dipping back into the Western motif, which seems to be a pretty reliable thing for him. He also did The Game Changers, which is a documentary, a British documentary about the production of the game Grand Theft Auto. Never heard of this one. And again... The two last roles that we have for him on television was the TV version of the movie Training Day uh, had started to come out, uh, which he was working on at the time. I'm not sure if it was fully filmed or not. And the movie The Circle with Tom Hanks and Emma Watson. This was, again, a slightly higher profile kind of film. Didn't do so well. I think it was a thriller. 
granted that both these projects were kind of, especially with the film, released after his his death. Now, one of the things that w- was really shocking, obviously, is the, the fact that, you know, one day I'm, I'm going through uh, Facebook or something and all of a sudden, you know, you really hate it when you see somebody's face and it's a very big picture and it says the person's name followed by, you know, act. Bill Paxton, actor of such blah, blah, blah. Oh, like You're like, oh no, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. And yes, on February 25th, 2017, Bill Paxton died of a stroke. The story is a sad story. He apparently had had to perform a heart-related procedure on one of his valves and his aorta a couple of days before. And this was as a, as a result of an illness he had when he was a little boy. Uh, he had uh, rheumatic fever which left him with, with uh, an, basically a, an injury on his heart that apparently at his, at his older age had turned into this problem that needed to be taken care of. However, again, as a result of the procedure, uh, he had a stroke and died. This was a, a real, real tough one for me because, you know, losing celebrities is nothing new. Singers actors, directors, whatever. But to lose somebody like Bill Paxton, it was just a reflection of the type of things that I'm into coming to an end. Again, because we have this possessive attitude towards our fandom, this was something that just kind of took away from you the opportunity to be able to watch these spikes in their careers and to be able to see you know all of a sudden the an, an individual become very relevant and very popular and then kind of going quiet for a while and then having these peaks and valleys here and there you know it's different when you have somebody who is um like a troubled individual who has having trouble with the law or with a substance abuse or, or alcohol or, or, or women, you know, whatever, things that you, you see them and you're like, oh, no, what did they do now? You know, that kind of stuff. But with Paxton, it was always kind of like you were waiting for that good news. In my situation, I was waiting for his next genre involvement, for example. And every now and then I would get surprised by his non-genre projects that were really good. I never had a chance to meet him. I was actually at a convention once. I think it was a New York Comic Con where he was there and I was there, but I wasn't able to kind of get to the area where he was. So that was a little disappointing. However, a friend of mine uh, had actually gotten an autograph uh, that I still have from him from a long time ago. I forget what he was promoting at that location that he was at, but my friend said to him, because he, he my, my friend gave me a heads up, he was like, hey, if I see him, is there something you want me to tell him that you're a fan of? And, you know, the regular stuff would be Terminator, Aliens, you know, all the, all the classic stuff. But I said to him, tell him, you know, if you do see him, tell him I'm a fan of Martini Ranch, his band. And he gave me this cool autograph that said something like, find time for self-culture, which is one of the uh, songs in the album, which, you know, it's different. It's it's not your typical game over man type of quote, you know, that you would have on a, on a typical picture. Uh, but um, that that was really, really cool. I remember I still have it. And it's it's always been the type of thing. It was kind of like a bucket list thing where it's like, oh, one day I want to meet him. One day I want to get this over with and meet him. But at the same time, it's one of those, oh, man, I don't know if I want to meet him because I don't want to ruin my 
my expectations and my perceived, you know, fantasy of what this person is like. So it was a weird thing, I remember. And, and one of the most uh, ironic or sad things I guess you could uh, say about this situation is that he had appeared uh, a few weeks before his procedure on the Mark Marin podcast. I used to listen to the, it's, it's the WTF podcast. Well, he had him on. You know, a, a little bit before this happened. And I remember listening to it, obviously, after the fact. And he does talk about what happened to him when he was young and how, you know, he was doing that. But one of the other sad things about it was that he was talking about his career and how he has these kind of, like I said, these ups and downs where he had these projects that he tries to get off the ground and they don't work. And then every now and then he does work and that sort of thing. And it's kind of funny because for us, you know, for, for a fanboy, when you have your perceived idols, let's say, and again, not the type of idols that are always getting in trouble for something, but the type of idols that you like to think are living a pretty stable life and there's just peaks, but no valleys, just peaks and peaks and another peak and then it comes back to normal. And another. But no, from listening to this uh, interview, I got the sense that, yeah, his his life was a series of peaks and valleys where, you know, he hustled and hustled and hustled and worked and did films that I'm sure he probably knew were not that good, but he's a working actor. You know, you like to think that everybody is like a Tom Cruise or, 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 or a, I don't know, a Johnny Depp. I don't even know who's famous these days, a Will Smith, you know, whatever, where they're constantly doing great films or not so great films, but they're still getting paid a bundle, but not really. Actors, you know, the majority of them, I assume, you know, they do take these gigs for the money. They do jump from genre to genre, from medium to medium. One day they're doing a voiceover, one day they're doing a commercial, one day they're doing a television show, they try to do a movie, because, you know, a movie is the top of that pyramid, but... It was a little sad, really, to hear how much this guy was still hustling. You know, he was still pounding the pavement with projects, trying to get off the ground. Like, the projects he wanted to do, they weren't necessarily getting done or being successful at, at, at getting, you know, somebody to back those projects. But on the other hand, he could jump into some independent film and, you know, I guess make a few bucks and then continue to pursue some of his other projects, every now and then getting lucky and hitting it big with some really good movie. But I don't know. I said it before, you know, with the passing of uh, Carrie Fisher, for example, that was a pretty sad thing because she was, you know, one of the pillars of Star Wars, of the main pillars, you know. The other stars are still around, granted, even Lucas is still around, but... I have a feeling that with Bill Paxton, to me, that was emotionally one of the signs of, you know, our own mortality and the fact that even the things that we admire and the things that we kind of like to think that they're our thing, it's our thing, even though it gets untarnished by scandal or by whatever, there's still going to be an end to it. And sometimes it's a very abrupt end. I mean... He was 61 years old, which is not really very young, but it's also not old. You know, 62 is really not what I expect anybody really to normally die of at that age. I imagine people should live till their 80s or 90s or something, you know. But 62, man, he 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 had a lot more 
you know, in front of him that he could have done. There was much more, tele- there were many more television shows and movies, you know, he could have been entering a, a new stage of his career as far as his acting. Like I said, the character he played in Haywire was a much calmer, older gentler kind of character and i could have seen him you know starting to do more roles like that but yeah that's that's the breaks i guess i mean i would definitely suggest if you're a fan download stream or watch or take your time to listen to that interview with mark Marin, which i believe might have been one of his last recorded interviews and i honestly don't think that I would have another person like him again. You know, for me, you know, you have your 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 Lucases, your Spielbergs, your Camerons, you have your actors, you know, your you have your your Mark Hamill, your Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher's gone, you know, but those are kind of like almost one character, one actor. Harrison Ford sticks out a little more because he's done some other major, major genre films that we're all big fans of. You know, take a directing like John Carpenter, for example. Take a modern director like uh, Christopher Nolan. Uh, you know, these big, big kind of guys. For me, you know, somebody like Bill Paxton, I kind of throw in there too, you know. I talked about Huey Lewis recently. There's another guy that he was part of my upbringing. He was part of my youth, part of my fandom. You know, before there was such a thing as fandom for me, that's what defined fandom. People like Bill Paxton and Huey Lewis, for example. There was a another thing I remember happened similar to this when Spalding Gray passed away. You know, Spalding Gray was kind of like this artist that I would follow and catch up to every now and then. But it was kind of like comfort food in terms of, I know he was there, and every now and then he came out, I would be there for him in terms of, I want to see his art. And then he would go away, and then I would go away, and then wait for the next time they kind of, you know, reappear. These type of artists like this is what I'm talking about. Spalding Great also died very sad, in a very sad, tragic manner. He was a little... You know, he, he had some serious, serious issues. But with Paxton, it's almost like an official end of your childhood. It's like, dude, you're old. <laughs> when your heroes start to die, that's a sign that you're getting old. So it kind of works in in different ways. You know, how this actor's death that, you know, I've never met, but I admired from afar has affected even my own life in terms of saying to yourself, wow, this is just unbelievable. We're getting close to that age now where the people that we thought were untouchable are just as frail as yourself. I don't know if this kind of attachment or admiration could happen again. I'm starting to think that this is more something to do with my own childhood You find these connections more when you're young, I think. Films, again, depending on your personality, television, films, actors, musicians, they become more important to you when you're younger, I think. You're a bigger fan. Your life can wrap themselves around these things that you admire more comfortably than when you're older and busier and worrying about more serious, real problems. But I'd like to think, or I imagine, that young people now, even these days, they are finding their 
people that they admire and they kind of form these fanboy connections too but wow yeah this one's uh this one was a tough one this was definitely a tough one and at least there's a ton of his work out there and one good thing about it is that because he did so much unbelievable work so much work you know volume wise there's a ton of stuff that i've never bothered looking at because i kind of dismissed it as it's probably pretty bad but it's out there and it's easy every now and then to take a look at one and who knows maybe you'll find the diamond in the rough here and there like i said haywire blew me away i was just that movie was just such a good movie and his role was was definitely a a hint of something's a little different now something's changing he's older thereby i'm older but still hearing the news of what happened was definitely a a punch in the gut personally to me all right i hope you guys enjoyed today's show i'm really really happy uh that i was able to find uh these two uh, interviews the mark Marin one is the one that i originally found when I started putting together the show. And then the Dean Del Rey interview, man, that was, uh, that was I think, almost hitting even harder because there were some things that he was saying on that interview, which took place after the Mark Maron interview, that dealt with things having to do with his personal heroes and how he you know, uh, in his mind when he was younger, and even while he was older, you know, you do create these mythical examples of, of people that you follow, uh, but you really don't know much about him in, in all reality. There, there seems to be an ongoing thread in what he talks about, bordering, if not deep in what would we consider midlife crisis. I, I talked about it in the opening, but this is something that a, a lot of people eventually get hit with. And he even mentions the fact that he was hoping that by this point in his career, he would be more of a director type of person instead of a, an actor, you know, chasing the, the next role. And, and you can almost hear it uh, in his voice. Again, I, I can't play those clips because, you know, you don't want to get in any kind of copyright issue reposting them. But I have those two links. And I definitely, again, if you're into... You know, if you're a big fan of, of, of Paxton, definitely listen to those two podcasts. Like I said, the first one is really good. The second one is even deeper than the first one, and it took place later. And with our knowledge, as we're as I'm listening to these things, knowing that, oh my God, this man is talking about life and death, and he's going to be dead in like two weeks later. It's like, wow, it's just so sad and so scary you know personally scary you know that that something like that could happen he was only 61 when he died which again and i'll say it again 61 is not that old anymore i mean i'm practically 50 so it's like wow this could happen. i mean don't get me wrong i know people could die any day any time for any reason i understand that but when you're dealing with your heroes dying kind of young, it's ooh, it just hits you really, really hard. You know, he does talk about the ups and downs of, of the particular career that he's made, you know, uh, out of his life. And, and that's something I mentioned that I, I kind of got that feeling from listening to the interviews that, man, when he hits those lows, he hits them hard. And, you know, to the point where he just doesn't know what to do with himself. And uh, he talks about depression. He talks about, you know, trying to get out of that rut 
which again are things that, you know, I, I'm familiar with that issue. And one of the, again, mo- more devastating topics that uh, they talked about on the Del Rey interview, they mentioned something about how they're always trying to get that perfect role to reach that perfect state of one's career. And unfortunately, they're kind of, and they're joking about this a little bit, but they're really not in another way. They talk about how, unfortunately, when you do reach that plateau, that's when you die because there's nothing left to do. And that's the end of it right there. The, the second you try to enjoy it, that's the second when, you know, I guess life plays the cruel joke on you and just said, that's enough. Again, two weeks later, he's dead. And I don't think he had reached that point. That's that's the saddest part about this is that you would have expected if this were a movie, if life was a movie and if he was going to die at an early age, it would be at the point where he feels his life is perfect and complete and accomplished. But listening to these interviews, you, you do get that sensation that he wasn't in that place. He, he did not feel fulfilled, accomplished, safe, comfortable. He, he was in one of these up and down modes. And, and he, you know, he's explaining that to the, to the interviewer. And it's kind of sad. At that time, he had just finished uh, shooting, I believe, the entire season of Training Day. I never got to see it. I don't know if it's still available somewhere. But you kind of also get the feeling that television is something that he ended up doing just because he needed something to do. He got a little taste of it, a very successful taste of it, if you think about it, from doing Big Love and HBO, but then kind of shifting gears to network television. I know that for actors, it's a step down once again, but you know, given the economics of, of his particular life, it was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, he did uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. a couple of episodes, and now he was jumping on another show. But, you know... You do get that sense that there's a lot of projects where he's the gun for hire and he's there to do a job that he's hired to do, uh, as opposed to when he talks about these passion projects that he has inside. You know, he had some JFK projects that he still wanted to do that he couldn't get off the ground. You, You get the feeling that he has a list of failures, if you will, things that just didn't work out. And granted, you know, when you're giving an interview with somebody, you don't want to just rattle off all of your failures. You know what I mean? Uh, it's it's You're trying to talk about the best things. But, yeah, this is the type of stuff you end up talking to a very close friend, a family member, your wife, your husband, you know, your maybe even your kids. But you do get that feeling that, man, he's carrying a lot of stuff in him. You know, he's at a point in his life where he's looking for something to kind of cheer him up, to bring him up. And it's 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 interesting because it almost you almost feel like you just scratch the surface on these two interviews, especially the second one, that you just scratch the surface on what might be going on in this individual's life. The fact that his persona is very different, I think, in a way, uh, than what he is thinking. In other words, when, when when he talks about you know what he perceived of Hollywood and what he wanted Hollywood to be. His mindset is an old 50s and 40s Hollywood in in the golden era of Hollywood. 
which is fantasy, you know, in the 70s and in the 80s and today. It's a whole other time that doesn't exist anymore. But that is kind of what he wishes and he would like it to be. He's, you know, he's he's into architecture. He's into preserving the old, you know, style and the old uh, way that things were, or at least thing, the, the way things were perceived and presented to the mass audience and how it doesn't kind of jive now anymore. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole completely different animal. You know, the, the business of Hollywood is so different than the perceptions of Hollywood. But again, I'm going to mention just one more thing that is ridiculous, but funny. And, and I, I, may, I find it so close in terms of the, the random thoughts that sometimes you get. On the Del Rey interview, he also talks about cows when he was younger. And he used to think at one point that it would be so cool... <laughs> If you could be a cow or a bull, because you just had no worries. Your job was basically to make more cows or bulls. That's all you did all day long. You got up, you did that. And it's funny because I the other day I was telling, I was asking my wife or my kids, I'm like, look at these cows over because I live in an area that is, uh, it's a developed area, but there's a lot of farms also around. And you're driving through small, very small size farms. You know, the type of farm, again, this is something he mentions on one of his interviews. It's the type of farms that they have enough cows so they can legally qualify for some kind of weird tax deduction or something. But it's not really a farm. It's it's barely a farm. But anyway, I was telling my kids, it's like, look at these cows. They have no worries at all. All they do all day is they come out, they eat, they maybe move about three or four feet, and then they eat some more. And they all they do is eat all day long, and, and then the day's over, and it's like, on the other hand, you know, that lifestyle might be a, a, a very attractive lifestyle because you have no responsibilities. You don't really need to do much. But yes, you do get uh, eventually, uh, most likely, a bolt in the head and you're shipped off to some kind of meatpacking plant. But I guess unless you're the bull, the bull is a little more. Uh, but as ridiculous as that train of thought, you know, kind of came through me and, and kind of went through me. I'm hearing a similar train of thought, you know, from Paxton, you know, talking about how he was thinking, you know, uh, something similar. I, anyway, that's a silly story. But I, I again, it, it may, I, it's like, wow, this is so cool <laughs> that he's having, you know, those kind of bizarre thoughts at the same time. This was a, a really tough episode in terms of, as you can tell, and I mentioned it before, the connections that we make, the heroes we designate. Whether they deserve it or not, that's not the issue. The issue is that we do cling on to certain people and and claim them as our own. Just like we do it with certain films. You know how passionate people are about Star Wars, Star Trek. You name it. And how everything just collapses when something goes wrong. When they don't live up to our expectations. When they suddenly unexpectedly die and, and something like that happens. Uh, how, how it could kind of, you know, shake us up a little bit. But hopefully, like I mentioned earlier, there are some roles still out there, some movies that he made that I still haven't seen that might surprise me. Uh, you know, I like to think I've seen the best of his stuff, but there's still enough out there that I might be pleasantly surprised. So my suggestion, once again, is listen to those two podcasts, interviews with Paxton. I will put the links up. Again, I'm sorry I could not play them for you because, again, I was afraid of the copyright issues of playing because these are long, long interviews. And, man, if you're a fan, it's gold. 
It's just gold. So thank you for listening, and we will see you next time here at Geek Best Friends. Bye-bye, everybody. So, you guys think you can pull one over on me, huh? Huh? You got everybody synced to the same bull**t story. This isn't bull**t. This is a Pershing missile chip. It's Chet. My name is Chet. And I didn't think it was a whale's honey. Hi, Nanny. Hi, Grampy. I'm not a moron, you know. I... Was that my grandparents? Are they dead? Oh, no. They're just resting. What are they doing in here? I put them in there. I didn't want the boys to get into trouble. Quite frankly, they weren't having a very good time at the party. Not having a good time? Do you think they're having a good time being catatonic in a closet? Do you have any idea how disrespectful that is? If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2019. <laughs>